Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Well, hello and welcome to Episode 9 of Everyday Buddhism, Making Every Day Better. Episode 9, amazing to me. Um, today I'm moving along the Eightfold Path, um, taking the next step from right speech, a.k.a. zip it, to right action or right conduct, which I've titled, Right Action is Not Reaction. But before I jump into it, I wanted to thank again everyone who took the time to reach out and share comments and questions with me on my website or through Facebook Messenger, and to thank those who donated to help me continue the work of this podcast. I have been touched by the things you've shared and that you've taken the time to share. Some of you suggested topics that you would like covered, and I'm listening, and I'm keeping track. So if you want to contribute ideas, you are welcome to be my associate, associate producer staff. So thank you to all. Another little bit of information um, before I get to today's subject is to share some exciting news with you. I have plans in the works to add more bonus content on focused subjects like uh, meditation, meditation versus mindfulness, Buddhism without meditation, God in Buddhism, prayer in Buddhism, a tour of the different schools and practice methods in Buddhism. So also I'm in the planning stages of creating groups and memberships so that you can have personal invites to ask questions or suggest podcast content or supporter hangouts. Um, and two very special things that I don't want to spoil the energy of right now until it's closer to their release. So this podcast journey has had a mind of its own, and I'm keeping myself open to wherever it seems to want to go. And it's all very exciting for me, and I hope for my current and future listeners, subscribers, and supporters. So, okay, with that bit of housekeeping out of the way, on to right action. You know... Right action. I've read a lot about right action, and it's always been sort of disappointing to me. There's been some teachers that I've I've, I've respect and, and have done a really good job um, of of explaining right action in the way I think makes sense to um, the Buddhist perspective, as as if Buddha were here talking to us now. But in reading the vast amount of stuff available on the internet in both scholarly and modern books and presentations on the Eightfold Path, when they come to right action, I'm always a little bugged. And you know what bugs me? I think the takeaway from those new to Buddhism, or sometimes even for those not so new to Buddhism, is that right action tends to be a focus on rules, regulations, proclamations from high Things not to do. You know, I don't know about you, but that's just the kind of thing that brought me to the study of Buddhism in the first place. I didn't want to hear about the things I was not supposed to, to do so that I would be a good person or get to heaven or gain enlightenment from somebody and accept it at face value because they said so. I started investigating Buddhism like I imagine some of you did, to get away from pronouncements, to get away from things based on words of humans passing on the rules they received through their personal connections or supernatural connections with religious authorities, quote unquote, or even supreme beings. You know, I'm no expert, but I don't believe that was the intent the Buddha had. And no, I'm not really contradicting myself from the previous episode um, when I said we couldn't really know what the Buddha's intent ever was. But you know, I think we can make an educated guess based on what we know of his teaching style. Now, as I've mentioned before, the Buddha taught by treating each person individually according to their circumstances, according to their outlook, according to their needs, 
So a blanket set of rules for lay people or everyday people just doesn't make sense. Monks and nuns, maybe, but not the others he taught. He taught in what we refer to as skillful means or upaya. And no matter what he taught or who he taught, his words were always, don't take it on my authority alone. Test it yourself. You know, my other complaint with those other presentations of right action is that right view seems to disappear. It's not emphasized. Right intention is most of the time, but the concept of right view, the sort of the why behind the action, seems to disappear and break the natural wholeness of the Eightfold Path. You know, I've mentioned this before. The Eightfold Path is referred to as a path, but it's not really. It's a process. It's not a linear list, but a circle, a holistic system. So in the example of right view and right intention, they keep informing each other. It's like, okay, I've got, it's not like, okay, I've got the right view thing down. Now I can move on to the right intention. No, they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And all those things lead you to a place where then your behavior, in other words, your speech and your action and your livelihood is based on the things you've thought about from the perspective of right view. You know, in our journeys through the Dharma, we will learn more about what right view is, and it causes us to discard, you know, outdated concepts and worldviews that either come from old childish notions or fears or hurts. Um, and at the same time that we outdate, we, we throw out those outdated notions or worldviews, we then throw out the associated behaviors, the habits, the negative thinking, the bad speech, and the inappropriate activities or action. This underlying wholeness of the path taught by the Buddha, this eightfold path, I think of it as like a, a spiritual organism. You know, as you practice, this whole organic wholeness becomes easier to understand. At first, all the lists, numbers, steps, etc. seem like these commandments to memorize and adhere to. But that is before you reflect, meditate, and practice. That is if you think about it as pronouncements on high that you need to memorize. You know, the meditation, the taking it in your in yourself, making your, your own, like the Buddha urged us all to do, the... When that happens, that fundamental interdependence begins to slowly come into focus. You know, a commitment to the discipline of the path will follow as a natural consequence of understanding. You know, it's a, in a confidence that you, you get as you go along the path. You build a confidence, or even a, you could refer to it as a faith. That is a thing that drives continuous or continual understanding and drives practice. You know, the unique quality of the Buddhist path is that it flows from logic and understanding as the grounds for practice, rather than the opposite, which tends to be the case, I think, in many other religious views and practice. So in the beginning, from a Buddhist point of view, in the beginning, there is the idea not like in the beginning there was the word, but yeah, that's kind of like that. In the beginning, there is the idea, the seed from which all else germinates. In spiritual practice, the view, the idea we hold of the world is certain to dictate the course of our actions. In Buddhism, the path of right view or right idea begins with a basic understanding of the spiritual laws of existence, or the Four Noble Truths. You know, I've talked about them before, but for those of you who are, who are beginning to understand this system, I'll, I'll kind of replay them here today. At, at sort of the risk of going too long, I will. I think it's a good idea now. So number one on uh, the, the Four Noble Truths, or sort of the spiritual laws of existence as, as seen by the Buddha, is number one, when we're alive and not enlightened, we experience dissatisfaction. 
And this is sometimes referred to as the unenlightened life is suffering. But, you know, as we've discussed in past episodes, the word dukkha is the word that's commonly referred to as suffering. Um, But the more accurate translation is uh, unsatisfactoriness or difficulty. And, and, And we can all accept that. Number two of the of the noble truths is the dissatisfaction or this dissatisfaction of life tends to be born out of an attachment or a craving or a grasping at something, someone, some experience. You know, if you like it, you want to grab it, possess it, keep it forever without anything ever changing. And of course we know rationally that won't happen and can't happen. You know, that, and it does stem from that grasping. And the, the thing to remember is that grasping stems from, extends from a wrong understanding of what makes us happy in the first place or a wrong understanding of what makes us unhappy. That's the pushing away. That, so number three, the habit of grasping, grasping and craving. I created a new word there, grasping. Um, this habit of craving and grasping is that unhealthy stickiness of the mind can be stopped. Our dissatisfaction or suffering over not getting what we want or getting what we don't want or about things changing when we want them to stay forever the same can be extinguished. That was the Buddha's promise to us. The facts that things change and are impermanent won't change, but our dissatisfaction or suffering about that fact will go away or lessen. And the way we can lessen or extinguish that experience of dissatisfaction is by practicing the Eightfold Path. The Buddha didn't awaken to the fact that, you know, that life is unsatisfactory only, and then he taught, oh boy, the life is unsatisfactory, wow, 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 because he taught us how to make it less unsatisfactory. And it starts with right view. You know, of course, suffering is is an experience all living things share. Yet, when you think about it, two people, let's, let's use this as an example. Two people break their legs or suffer an illness with, an, if we could measure it, say, with a, uh, an objective measure with an identical level of physical pain and discomfort involved in that broken leg or illness. And, you know, one person may accept it gracefully. Find ways to experience, live it fully, make the best of it, you know, make lemonade out of lemons. Another will suffer a psychological hell of their own making. And their experience of this hell is much worse than the objectively measured pain and discomfort of whatever injury or illness. You know, this essential difference in experience of two people sharing essentially an identical misfortune is it due to the excessive desire or grasping of one, the one person, and versus the total acceptance of, from the other person. So the source of their problems then lie not in the experience of a broken leg or an illness, but in the view they hold of the world that made that experience a hell for them. That is living out of touch with reality. And this sort of ability to stop the grasping, to accept what things really are, is what renunciation means. I mentioned this before about renunciation. Renunciation has such a bad word, right? Uh, you know, it, it's it's this, you know, kind, I think most people would think of it as, oh, that's totally unrealistic renunciation, getting away from the world. No, renunciation renunciation in Tibetan indicates what renunciation really means. It's our tip-off. In Tibetan, renunciation means authentic becoming. So it doesn't mean living in isolation from the world or renouncing of the world or being totally unrealistic and moving away from the world. It's the exact opposite. It means the renouncing of the delusions that keeps one from seeing things as they are and therefore becoming their authentic self. It means giving up clinging to the appearance of things as something someone out there, 
happening to you. It means instead of grasping tightly to the things that will only cause us suffering and clinging desperately to the things as we would like them to be, we accept or surrender to things exactly as they are. Many Westerners, you know, view acceptance as a kind of like moral cowardice. Even that word acceptance, I think it sort of has that connotation of weakness. In the words of Dylan Thomas, do not go gentle into that good night, but rage, rage against the dying of the light. You know, the truth is, acceptance is not the passive state. Desire of it to be otherwise is the passive state. This is one of the misunderstandings, the, this is one of the biggest, I think, misunderstandings inherent in the modern world. Acceptance is a conscious awareness of the reality of one's situation. And by that, it does not at all imply a lack of energy or a lack of um, being in the world. Acceptance is action because it deals with things as they are, with suchness. That's the Zen term describing things as they actually are, suchness. An attachment to desire is sort of a, it's a type of frenetic non-action that ignores reality in favor of a dream or an illusion. You know, understanding and accepting reality is the beginning of enlightened action. In order to be pursue a goal, we must have a grasp of what the conditions are that will shape the direction of our efforts. The Buddha defined them for us. His interest was not in presenting just this overarching, you know, esoteric, philosophical, or religious system. But no, he was laying out a roadmap so that we may find our own way the way he found his own way. His teaching was an expression of his own experience rather than a philosophical agenda handed down to him from tradition. No, he was doing the exact opposite. He was breaking from tradition. See, the power of this teaching, you know, it, it, it arises directly from its unconditioned freedom. But this freedom can only be obtained when we have the courage to pioneer into our own selves with our eyes wide open. You know, according to Buddhist teachings, the fundamental reality of the universe is the Buddha mind, the pristine mind. And this pristine mind is really none other than our original nature. This nature is hidden from us through those faulty desires and attachments, which are habits created over lifetimes. This is the ignorance that is referred to in Buddhism. Ignorance not meaning, oh, you're stupid. Ignorance meaning it's inherent in our human condition. It's an ignorance that blocks our, our authentic becoming. Because we have an attachment to an elusive dream self, we get stuck on that, looking for that elusive dream self that will never materialize. And that keeps us from seeing our original true nature. We are literally unable to see the forest for all of the trees. Yet, there is no forest other than all of the trees. So the result of practicing the Eightfold Path is to begin to see each tree or thing for what it is. A perfect expression of time and space. Every tree in the forest is a mirror to the process of becoming. And the forest, too, is becoming. All of life becomes merged in a mutual identity at this subtle level of understanding that seems to be beyond our ability to grasp. This is the result of a change of perspective that allows our perception of reality as a dynamic whole rather than a set of discrete structures in a linear causal relationship. You know, like the Eightfold Path, it's not one than the other, than the other. It's a, it's a dynamic whole. So the dynamic whole of the Eightfold Path is sort of the mirror of the dynamic whole of the universe, of life, of things as they are. Or as we say in Bright Dawn School of Oneness Buddhism, oneness. 
this isn't like woo-woo, oneness, everybody gets along and sings kumbaya. This is reality as it is, oneness. We usually see a tree or a maple or an oak tree, right? That's a linear perspective that ignores the tree's interaction with the rest of the environment. A tree is a dynamic process. It's not a tree, as in a concrete being. But we perceive it as such because of the limits, you know, imposed on us by our senses and the corresponding interpretation by our mind given to us by the labels of our culture, parents, school, whatever. But our eyes are able to perceive light reflected from a source within the limits imposed by the visible spectrum. Although we are like, you know, aware of, we see something, we see the tree, we see this, we see a light. And although we know that scientifically there are other radiations like infrared and ultraviolet light, we're unable to perceive them with our, our, our human sight. Though the energy of light is composed of undulating patterns or waves, our perception of change is limited to only sort of rapid transformation. Change is happening constantly in this sort of undulation, but we only see um, first it's here and then it's not there, right? Or first it's alive and then it's dead. But if you look like, say, at a time-lapse film of a garden flower, well, then you see that change, but we can't see it, right? The Buddhist term, quote-unquote, mutual interpenetration or mutual interdependence recognizes this sort of dynamic interplay. Every aspect of the garden is affecting and being affected by all other aspects simultaneously. The evidence of this reality is recognized in many disciplines, from ecology to, a par to particle physics. The essential point, though, from our perspective, from an everyday Buddhist perspective, is that our own being is also sharing in this interpenetration. So there is no inherent reality of self outside of this interpenetration. No permanent soul, mind, or spirit that is not one with this internal interchange. The process is being that's it. There is nothing else. The forest is the trees, and the trees are the forest. The rose is the garden, and the garden the rose. Others are self, and self is the other. There is nothing other than this. Nothing to, cl to cling to, and nothing to fear. For if all is self, then there is no self which can be threatened by other. You know, David Brazier in his book, The Feeling Buddha, says a meaningful life has this quality of working with whatever is at hand. It is not a matter of creating a particular state of affairs, unquote. So what is at hand for us is seeing things as they are. First, in our thoughts, then in our speech, then in our action and livelihood, on a minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour, day-by-day basis. You know, the Buddha says that identifying the source of a problem is not sufficient in and of itself to make that problem disappear. So right view causes us to wake up and get to our feet. So we've identified the problem, but we then have to get to our feet, right? Then we have the intention, the right intention, how not to be, how to be less of a jerk, to change things that we can change. And what we can change is what is outlined in the remaining aspects of the Eightfold Path. Right action, which we're covering today, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and then right concentration. You know, the Buddha taught an extensive course of ethics, primarily, though, for his mon monastic disciples, but also for lay people. He taught what we should and should not do as a guideline of ethical self-discipline, not rules, pronouncements from above, but ethical self-discipline. That is the foundation for meditation, 
mindfulness, and compassion, which is love transformed by wisdom. Those are the three trainings common to all Buddhist teachings. And what he was trying to do is say, okay, based on disciplining yourself in these areas, you will then have the proper conditions for mindfulness. And when you have the proper conditions for for mindfulness or meditation, then you have the proper condition for compassion, which is love transformed by wisdom. He did this through a set of 10 vows. Um, And the 10 vows in Buddhism are referred to as the 10 non-virtues or sometimes the freedom vows. They're referred to as freedom vows because the Buddha taught only what is expeditious, right? This is what will get us to freedom, which is my goal in these podcasts. Not that I'm Buddha, but, you know, teaching or sharing. I don't teach, I share. Sharing because I am a bigger bumbler than probably most of you listening to this podcast, but um, sharing what I know to be true that I don't always accomplish, sharing what is efficient, what works for the everyday, that if practice will free us from illusion and attachment. And these 10 non-virtues or 10 freedom vows are grouped by the three gateways again, body, speech, and mind. So of the 10, three are related to the body, three are related to the mind, and four are related to speech. I think we've touched on that during the area of speech. See, So of the body is, number one, refrain from taking life or killing. Refrain from taking things that don't belong to you or that weren't freely given to you or stealing. Refrain from sexual misconduct. Of the speech, refrain from lying. Refrain from divisive speech. Refrain from harsh words and refrain from idle talk. And of the mind, refrain from covetedness, refrain from harmful thought or ill will, and ten, refrain from wrong views, which is the big one, right? That's kind of like the beginning and the end. So these appear to be moral admonitions or spiritual injunctions, you know, do not do this, do not do that, etc., In the West, these types of commands evoke an emotional response as as sort of biblical commandments from a patriarchal father God. You know, but the Dharma is more dynamic than that. So it requires a more flexible understanding. To Buddhists, the law of karma takes into account the motivation behind an act as well as the act itself. When reflecting on different types of vows of Buddha, uh, in Buddhist teachings, you will find that intention or motivation is an extremely important consideration. It is sometimes necessary to commit to actions which appear to be contradictory to spiritual principles, as a bodhisattva, for example. If you take bodhisattva vows, it is you take a vow that it may be necessary to kill one person to save many others then that, therefore, is not a a violation of the injunction against killing, but an expression of the spirit behind the injunction. Buddhist moral statements are not laws which point to absolute good, absolute bad. There's no absolutes at all. They're rather an expression of spiritual practice aimed at creating an overall constructive energy of life. Nico Nuano, in his book, Shakyamuni Buddha, A Narrative Biography, writes, quote, If unvarying, inflexible rules are forced on people without regard for differences in climate, race, customs, individual constitution, and character, people become so preoccupied with such regulations that they are apt to overlook the essential purpose of the practice, which is to rid themselves of illusions, unquote. You know, that leads us to this next question, which I know everyone will ask afterwards if I don't touch on it today. And that's the question of meat-eating, vegetarianism, and veganism. Something I read a long time ago from the book, The Beginner's Guide to Walking the Buddha's Eightfold Path by Gene Smith. This is a I think it's a relatively unknown book, but um, it's really a good book to to check it out. Um, 
But something always stuck in my head about this when 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 I talk to people out about vegetarianism, meat eating, veganism, so forth. So I looked it up again to share with you. I'm going to take two rather substantial quotes from it because I think it's going to illustrate the point. Quote, Adolf Hitler was a vegetarian. The Dalai Lama, the very embodiment of compassion, eats meat on his doctor's orders. Clearly, there's more to mind than what is put into the mouth. Yet as long as food remains a fundamental part of life, these choices are a proper focus of spiritual awareness. You know, every bite of macaroni contains choices about culture, history, meaning. Even the nutrition facts newly listed on every U.S. noodle box have resonances for us that spread as far as asceticism, sin, compassion, the place of science in our beliefs, and the importance of supporting one's own well-being along with the well-being of others. She continues, quote, eating meat varies considerably among heavily Buddhist countries. Chinese, Korean, and Vietnamese Buddhists generally are vegetarian. Japanese and Tibetans usually are not. Westerners fit no set pattern. Some are, some aren't. And some who are vegetarians make exceptions. You know, there are several wonderful stories about these, and I'm still quoting her here. Several wonderful stories about these variations are related by Helen Twerkoff in the book Zen in America. Writing on the first precept, No Killing, she quotes Helen Twerkoff from her book, quotes Robert Aitken, who recalls that, quote, someone once asked Alan Watts why he was a vegetarian. He said, you probably heard this, because cows scream louder than carrots. This reply may serve as a guideline, or it might strike you as insensitive. But some people will refuse to eat red meat. Some people will not drink milk. Some people will eat what is served to them, but will limit their own purchases of animal products. Aiken, who generally maintains a vegetarian diet, has said that if he goes to a dinner party and is served meat, he will eat it because the cow is dead and the hostess is not. End of quotes. So me here again. So remember that the Buddha stressed that we should not accept his teachings on blind faith, but rather explore them for ourselves and make up our own minds. So whether we choose to be vegetarian is a decision each of us make for ourselves. If we do decide to eat fish, fowl, or meat, we may decide to not purchase it from stores that use inhumane practices in raising or slaughtering their animals. Right view and right intention can be our internal guidelines on all things. Now, many teachers, Buddhist teachers, sort of reverse those 10 freedom vows from the typical presentation of do not do or refrain from to a list of, now here's what to do. I really like this way of looking at the freedom, freedom vows, and I think this is the most everydayness presentation we can have. It would go like this. Of the body, number one, nourish life or do things to protect life. Examples of that would be, did you move a pencil off the stairway that someone might have slipped on? You know, we're not all going to get a chance to throw some out, someone out of the way of a speeding taxi or invent a vaccine. But did you move that pencil? Did you pick up that, um, that toy that was on the stairway? Did you give an aspirin to someone at work who had a headache? Did you make tea for someone with a sniffle? You know, this is simple ways that we can look around and help to protect life. Number two, honor others' people's property. Examples, very simple, very down-to-earth, varied every day. Did you take the last of the toilet paper from the bathroom roll and didn't make sure it was replaced for the next person? Did you pick up that little tiny minuscule piece of Kleenex that just fell out of your purse and put it in your pocket or purse to throw it away later? Or did you leave it on the floor or on the ground in the park? Stuff that small makes a difference. You know, heaven is built on small things. An empty bucket can be filled by drops of water. 
you'll find out that you don't have to be Mother Teresa to start embedding these mindful ways of making a difference every day. Number three, are you sexually pure? Not necessarily celibate, but pure. And are you faithful in your relationship with others, all others? Are you, it's like if you're engaging in sex, are you getting obsessed about it and thinking about it all day or doing it in improper places at improper times with improper people? You know, a healthy sexual normal relationship is fine. Adultery, of course, is not. Does thinking about sex bother your peace of mind? See what I mean? That's the question. Are you maintaining the level of sexual purity that you've committed to? For a married person, it would be, did you check out someone else's partner today, even briefly, just for a second? Did you think that way? Don't let it obsess your life. Honor your own and other people's commitments. Don't ever cross the line, even a little. It becomes easier with all the little things, all these things of body. Now moving on to speech, the sort of the positive reversal of the freedom vows. Four, be truthful. Try to be totally truthful all day long. It's tough. So are you required to tell someone how bad their dress looks if they ask you for your opinion? Nah. Change the subject. Drop your pencil or coffee cup. If anything would hurt someone in some way, make them very angry, if it's destructive, it's best to slide out of it if, if you can. But otherwise, be as truthful as you can. The key, again, is intention. And would it hurt the other person? Five, do you speak in ways that bring people together? Do you, in your everyday conversations, and I think this one is very big, try to big bring people closer together? Once in a while, you meet a person who's really good at this. I have a friend who will run up to you and say, I've got someone you have to meet. You'll love this person. And he introduces you and your best friends forever. See what I mean? Because our normal human tendency is, did you hear what he said about you? Did you know what she did? Did you know what she said to this person? No, our tendency is do, to do the exact opposite, to speak, to bring people apart. We don't necessarily do it on purpose. But even if it's uh, an intention built on bad habits, it's still got to go, right? So find ways to bring people together with your words. Number six, speak gently. Gentle, thoughtful. Don't talk trash talk at work to be one of the guys and then expect to have a habit of gentle speech during the hours after work. And don't talk in sweet ways when you're not feeling sweet at all. Like when you say, have a nice day, but what you really mean is go to hell. We all know that. We felt it. It's judged by our intent. So speak gently and think gently. Number seven, speak meaningfully. Whenever you open your mouth, try to say something that has some kind of relevance to the person's life. Like don't yap about Trump or stuff that's never going to be resolved. Stuff that doesn't matter or stuff that doesn't help anybody. Don't complain about Fox News or just waste talk, okay? Before you open your mouth, ask yourself if you're about to say something meaningful. And boy, I'm talking to myself here. <laughs> okay, and then of the mind. We did the body, the speech, and the mind. Now the, the positive of the mind. When you see something, I mean, when you see someone else achieve something great or get something, be happy for them. What's the opposite of that? It's like jealousy or unhappiness when someone gets something nice. When they when they make some money, when they're when they buy a new car, um, when something good happens to somebody else, you have to rush up and say, I'm so happy you got that promotion, you really deserve it. Try to consciously experience the joy in the other person's success. You know, our human tendency is to be jealous. But as budding bodhisattvas, we are committed to the goal of bringing every happiness to every sentient being. So don't think, I don't see why he got the promotion. Number nine, try to really feel for people who are suffering, suffering misfortune, no matter how famous they are or no matter how much you don't like them. Like when someone is suffering in some way, 
take the time and the effort to try and empathize with them. The normal human tendency is to do the exact opposite. Oh, so-and-so got caught in bank fraud or a sexual scandal. His life is ruined. Tell me more. Tell me more. You know, there's this human tendency to be fascinated by other people's problems, especially famous people's problems. Like, you know, when Anthony Bourdain committed suicide, it was just the tip of the iceberg. I know there's been a rash of suicides. I know I have... Suicide is kind of something we need to look at. All the, the treatment of mental illness in general is a problem. I agree with all that. But when you look on social media and, it, and then it's just this constant um, posting of Anthony Bourdain committing su- suicide. Why? How? All that. that, that it, it's just, I don't, I don't think it's um, really feeling for other people's misfortune. I could be wrong. But from the way people post it so offhandly, it's just too easy. It's just way too easy in my mind. See, this is the big thing in social media and cable TV. People seem to love to hear about the misfortune of others. But we have to train ourselves to think the opposite. And I think most of the time that means don't post anything at all. Meditate on it. When you hear about something like that, you're like, oh, I'm sorry for his family and I feel really bad about it and then you post something and then you get into the why who what how who got hurt but you have if you meditate it then you really get to the feeling that you really wish it would never happen to anyone again it's the opposite you know the the really feeling it is the opposite of being fascinated by it you truly have to put yourself in the place of the other you know, try to have extensive empathy or compassion for other people's problems rather than this secret little fascination, joy, or sort of ambulance chasing. I don't know what it is. It's a weird human tendency. You're not upset by it. You're fascinated by it. You're just fascinated. Don't know what it is, but I think we can break it by really taking on the suffering rather than just flippantly posting, oh, that's awful on Facebook. Number 10, maintain a Buddhist worldview. And what is that? Understand that all good things come from helping other people and all bad things come from looking out for our own interests only. You can watch out for your own interests, but equally watch out for other people's interests. As I mentioned earlier, understanding and accepting realities, you know, seeing life as it is rather than as you would like to be, is the very beginning of enlightened activity. From the perspective of Buddhism, the process of thought cannot be separate from the process of intention and will. There is a constant interaction. This is important for us to remember because it forces us to recognize how our actions affect our worldview. Do you hear how I did that? How our actions affect our worldview. It's simple to see the opposite, how our viewpoint accepts, affects our actions. Because in most cases, our actions are predicated upon a conscious view of some sort. But what we don't see is that whenever we choose to act in a certain way, that action in turn affects our view of the world from then on. The action we take is registered in our unconscious as memory. And then that becomes the available reference for all future actions. Well, I did it that time. I'll do it again. That worked okay. I didn't get caught or or it worked for me and whatever. Every time we face a situation that calls for action, we sort of, you know, our mind cognitates it. It analyzes the situation and then makes a choice, activating the will. In the process, we are assessing our memory, and our memory contains both the memory of our previous actions and, and our worldview as well. So this begins this sort of uh, reciprocal process where the mind searches for continuity or conformity between the past action and the worldview. Memory has to link pertinent data together in patterns so that it understands what to do with it and understands if this, okay, is this information appropriate for this situation and how I'm going to respond? If our actions are not consistent with our worldview, 
It creates a problem for our unconscious. How does it know what information to provide us with if there aren't natural patterns of consistency? So then our unconsciousness is unconscious is left with only two choices. It can ignore our worldview and then access memories consistent with our past actions or relegate the views held but not acted on to a kind of subdirectory. So the mind balks at this kind of conflict between um, what you do and what you feel about what you do and what you plan to do. And it reacts, see, it reacts to the inherent tension between the worldview and actions taken which are inconsistent with the worldview. In other words, every time we take an action and it violates what we know to be right in our hearts, it causes chaos in our unconscious. And that eventually develops is, is either an emotional turmoil or sort of a spiritual character that is sign of does one thing one time and then one thing the other. There's no authenticity to it. That is why establishing a robust worldview that is strong enough to power intention is so important. This is where make consistently creating a habit of maintaining the proper view. You know, that's the first part of the Eightfold Path. And that is where mindfulness comes in again. That is why taking time each day, say 15, 20, 30 minutes, preferably two times a day, morning and night, to reflect and meditate on how your worldview and understanding of what is right and what is not right is consistent with your actions. A more energetic practice to try, and one I wholeheartedly recommend, is to keep a journal. Tracking your thoughts, tracking your speech, and tracking your actions. This was a practice given to me by one of my teachers. It originated from a practice done by Tibetan monks. So they'd go through the day, you may have heard this story before, and for each negative deed they observed in themselves, they would put a black stone in one pocket. And for each positive deed they observed themselves doing, they'd put a white stone in the other pocket. So that at the end of the day, they reviewed their stone totals and reflected on how they could do better. You can do the same thing with a notebook or your smartphone. I suggest checking it every four to six, checking yourself every four to six hours or every two to four to six hours. When I did the practice, I did it every two hours. It was tough, but I did it for quite a while. So you can pick one of the freedom vows to track all day long or a different vow each time throughout the day. So you know what you were thinking, saying, or doing in the last two to four hour period before you've forgotten. This builds mindfulness into your day. And it's very effective for correcting mindless habits that you wish you didn't have. You know, I have to do it again because I've been back into those, some of those mindless habits of reactivity. See, when you consciously try to build mindfulness into your day, what you notice is that sometimes it's not speaking and not acting that is right action. It is the best possible action, and that is not acting at all. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, our culture, in our culture, we are hardwired to sort of just react, respond to anything that happens to us or around us with either a quick action or a quick speech. And I think people look at us crazy if, if we just stand, if we don't. People who are the quietest, you know, sometimes we think, gee, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on with them or whatever. I think we could all be more like that. And it's, but it's nearly impossible to deprogram ourselves from that cultural hardwiredness to react to everything. Even in situations where there is absolutely nothing we can do, we still impulsively try to do or say something. But, you know, we have to remember, sometimes non-action is the smartest action. And certainly, mindfulness is the best action. As my social media promotion for this podcast episode expressed, um, it, it expressed a quote from Lao Tzu. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? The truth is, we often react without thinking. It's a gut reaction. 
often based on fear and insecurities, and it's not the most rational and appropriate way to act. You know, that's reacting. Responding, on the other hand, is taking the situation in, deciding the best course of action based on values such as reason, compassion, cooperation. For example, reactivity. You know, your child breaks something, you immediately react by getting angry, perhaps yelling, upsetting the child, upsetting yourself, worsening your relationship, and it doesn't make anything better. Now, a response would be your child breaks something, you notice because you paused your anger reaction, you take a breath, you consider the situation, check to see if the kid's okay, she hurt, she's scared, realize the object is broken, okay, we can live without that, then help clean it up, calmly talk to the child about how to avoid those kind of things, give her a hug, and boom, everything's better. We have that choice presented to us all the time, whether it's our mother nagging at us, our coworker being rude, our husband not being kind enough, whatever. There will always be external events that bother us. But if we learn to respond and not react, we can make things better and not worse. Something I need to remember all the time. I am botherable, but sometimes I'm really good at just responding and not, not reacting. And other, other times, not at all. The main thing is to learn mindfulness and learn the pause. Mindfulness means watching ourselves when something is happening that might normally upset us or trigger us with some ki- to some kind of emotional reaction. Play, pay close attention to what our minds normally do. See that it's happening, then pause. We don't have to act immediately. Just because we have an internal reaction, we don't have to bring it out externally. We can pause, not act. We can breathe, not act. And then we can watch this urge to act irrationally rise and then go away. You know, sometimes it takes a few seconds. Other times it means it's going to take longer than that if we're particularly riled. So if that's the case, we remove ourselves politely from the situation, let ourselves calm down, and then respond. Remember the pause. Watch the reaction go away. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining me. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting the work through ratings, reviews, or a donation on my website at everyday-buddhism.com. Until next time, keep making your everydays better.